Hey, Dave. Hey, we're guess back again. Yeah, we're back again. Guess who's back? It's uh, Mr. Mark, Mark. Thacker. I'm yeah. Back. You can't get rid of me. <laughs> like, a, like, a bad like, a, penny. <laughs> like a bad penny. Mark Thacker is back on the show. Uh, but this time to talk about nerd stuff, right? Yeah, we're, we're dialing it up here. Uh, so what, what are we going to be talking about, uh, uh, Gunner, on this episode? Well, I think I figured we just shipped a new version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, version 7.4, and this is the first version of RHEL uh, for for which uh, Mark has been able to leave his fingerprints on it. So in this release, all the security features uh, passed over Mark's desk. He was the guy who right. uh, kind of coached, cajoled, prodded, uh, administered carrots, administered sticks uh, to get all those uh, to get all to get all, get all those features <laughs> in the. I figured we'd give him some time on the air to talk about uh, all the all the fun security features that are in the in this version of RHEL. Cool, cool. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and then also if uh, people wanted to, uh, Mark, if, if people wanted to get show notes and to follow along and subscribe and everything, what, what website do we want to send them to? Sure. So uh, let's send them to dgshow.org, dgshow.org. And, and there are, if you're listening to this, go to the site. There are a ton of links that we're going to make available on these show notes to all of this technology that we're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So, so Mark, with... Seven four. So this. So with you being at Red Hat for a year and being in the product management for security and for storage and all that, um, this was the first minor release of RHEL that you were able to go from start to finish, right? Uh, for this release. That's correct. Yeah, I, I inherited everyone else's good work before this, but this this one you can fully blame on me. <laughs> okay. Right. So well, let's let's just talk about some of the cool things with the the security features that you see. Like, what are some of your uh, favorite things? That's a great question. So we have seven hours for the podcast, correct? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. right. Yeah, 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 that's right. I'm, like I'm starting the clock now. Yeah, version. that's right. Okay, yeah, I started. I'm going to just take over the blog from this point forward. Um, uh, all right. Yeah, so, I'll go eat dinner and come back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> funny part, I could probably talk the entire time. So let's see. For, okay, so with 7.4, um, if you just go look at the press release, you're going to see a ton of security features in there. Um, let's let's cherry pick some that I think are really interesting. Um, first off the bat, the thing that I that that makes a lot of hay with customers and that they are like, thank God you listened to us. Uh, there's a technology that we're introducing in 7.4 called network bound disk encryption, mm-hmm. uh, NBDE for short. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. This is this is new technology, which I will I will describe the problem that it solves. And if we had just stopped there, that would be good enough. Um, but what this really does, this is two parts. There's a there's a client called Clevis and a server called Tang. They're delivered standard feature in every copy of RHEL 7.4. This initial implementation of this technology is for solving the classic problem of your machine boots and it's in a lights out management center and you are not there to enter in the password to decrypt the Lux encrypted boot volume because everyone listening to this show encrypts their boot volumes with Lux. Everyone nod your head. Yes. <laughs> um, it, 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 the, the great part about doing Lux is that it's a software-based encryption mechanism for protecting data at rest. That's wonderful. It works on uh, physical machines, virtual machines. It works in the cloud. It's great. It's consistent everywhere you go. The bad part about using Lux is that today, like I said, if your machine boots, you have to be there to type in the password. Um, there are other solutions that are available that have been force jammed 
by various commercial vendors, uh, by cloud vendors, et cetera, to try and get around this problem. They all have an inherent problem of either being costly or leaving passwords unencrypted on the disk, right? We don't want to do that. What this network-bound disk encryption does is uh, at boot time, um, I'll describe how it works. I'll tell you how it does it. Uh, at boot time, basically, your machine boots, this little Clevis process runs, it reaches out over the network. Uh, it doesn't even have to use HTTPS to do this. It talks to the Tang server, which is located on the same network. Uh, the Tang server says, hey, there, Clevis client, how are you doing? Here's my public key. It only sends basically a public key across the wire. Clevis gets that, has now enough information, it can decrypt encrypted uh, boot volume password, passes it into the boot system, your machine boots hands-free. So in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., when your machine needs a reboot or the power goes out, comes back up, do you have to enter in the password? No, you don't. What about that wonderfully complex PKI infrastructure that you normally would establish to go solve this problem? Not needed. Mm -hmm. In fact, the nice part about the way that this technology works, take one step back, sorry, this is what I do, again, I take a step back. Um, Clevis and Tang is actually really a, a policy-based implementation for decrypting uh, data. And the initial implementation, as I said, is for boot volumes. So we get rid of the classic admin problem of having to enter a password in a boot. What this product actually does, though, is that it is smart enough so that when you install it on your system, right, you've already got your Lux encrypted volume. So this works, by the way, for all your existing Lux volumes that you have out there. Um, you then authenticate to the Tang server from your, from your client, right, your Clevis system that's running on your RHEL 7 server. Um, it encrypts the password, then throws away the public key side of, of the equation. So what you actually have on disk in and of itself, you cannot like take what's on disk, like take that system out of the data center and figure out what the password is needs needed to actually boot the system because there's nothing left behind that's, that's, that's a part of the decryption process. Your Clevis system has to talk to a Tang server to decrypt. Now, by the way, you can also set it up so that uh, if you do have physical access and have the password, uh, you could still enter that in. That's a, a good fail-safe mechanism. Like, oh, I don't know, say all your Tang servers are disconnected, you still need to be able to boot the box, you can still do that, right? It's not, not a one-way operation necessarily. But this is a policy-based mechanism. So you can do other things with this policy-based mechanism moving forward. Well, let me give you an example. In RHEL 7.4, um, we're also supporting as a technology preview the ability to take this Clevis and Tang uh, operation and, and apply it to USB devices. Specifically, we call it UDesk 2 support. But imagine a USB thumb drive that's Lux encrypted. Now, today you can do this. You can plug in a USB drive that's Lux encrypted, and what does it do? Oh, you have to enter the password in to mount that said USB device. Well, what we're supporting in 7.4 is now when you plug that USB device in and you're on the same network as your Tang server, like say when you're at work, that USB device will automatically mount and automatically decrypt. In and of itself, that sounds like it's just a great convenience factor. But let's say that you're in an environment where you want to make these USB devices portable and yet secure. Now you can give out USB devices that are Lux encrypted. They work when they're on a Tang network, but if you do not give out the normal manually entered password to anybody, 
Now I can go give this USB device out to anyone I want to, and they can't even use it unless they're on the same network as the Tang server. Hmm. Just plug the device in, you can use it, take it out. Oh, I accidentally took it home. Oh my gosh, I dropped it on my way out to uh, Target and it's in the parking lot. Oh my God, I just lost all this. No, it's okay. Because if you put the USB device in and you don't have the password, you're not going to get past it. You have to be on the same network as the Tang server. So now you have portable, secured USB devices that you can do straight out of the box with RHEL 74. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And I can imagine, too, that there's the, the situation in the government side where instead of having like a private sit there and, and type in passwords for every time a system boots up, you know, it fixes that problem. But the other thing is, as people move more and more to ephemeral workloads that are cloud-based, uh, this becomes more and more important. Right. Absolutely. So, so in the cloud model, you will not have access. Uh, if you're using uh, Mill Cloud, et cetera, Fed Cloud, you, you don't have access to those boxes. And remote console access at the console level can be difficult at best. So this eliminates that problem altogether. Now, I said that this was a, a framework. This is extendable. This is pluggable. We will add more things in the future. For example, on the long-term drawing boards and things that are in, in, in the community now, Oh, this is all open source. You guys know that, right? This is in an open source community. Uh, trusted platform module support. That's something that we're looking at. Uh, we do want to provide the ability and kind of have it today to plug into a PKI if you already have that in the infrastructure. You can imagine us being extended to biometric authentication potentially. This is an entirely pluggable, lightweight, scalable infrastructure. The Tang server is totally stateless. There's nothing that's kept around about the clients that are connecting, which means one, it's secure. Two, it means it can scale to literally thousands of simultaneous accesses at the same time because it doesn't need to keep state like a traditional PKI would. So there you go. That's so that's just fantastic. It's so exciting. I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting here just appreciating the fact, like having been the guy with the pager who had to get in his car and drive to the server to go type in the password uh, to get it, to get it going again. Um, this is just, this is like mana from heaven. I just love this feature. <laughs> I just found our new marketing tagline. <laughs> awesome. um, well, speaking yeah. of USB, uh, what, what else? Uh, there's another favorite that you have with when it comes to USB and RAL 7.4. Yes, USB guard. USB guard is awesome technology. So today, in route. So there's a theme, by the way. Um, I'll take a step back. There's a theme. We really do want to make our customers' lives easier. We want to make the administrators' lives easier. We want to make this technology uh, easier to use and deploy, which makes it easier to secure, which brings us to USB Guard. Today, in RHEL or most Linux systems, um, yes, you can do things like control through these really wonderfully complex things called UDAV rules whether or not certain USB devices can be plugged in and used on your system. But it's not easy. It, it's really not easy. If you wanted to set up a rule that said, hey, I would like it to where customers can plug in keyboards, they can plug in mice, but they cannot plug in a keyboard with a camera on it. What the heck is that, right? But there are weird USB devices out there that have... Uh, you know, they look like a keyboard, but they're also mass storage devices or they're mass storage device with a camera. Maybe that's not a great thing, right? Certain secure installations, you want to control what type of devices are plugged in. And the old rule of thumb of, well, I'll just turn off USB. 
that doesn't really actually work. Uh, and I'm not talking about just laptops here. Imagine in a server environment, uh, if you just turn off USB, well, how do I get access to a crash cart to plug in stuff, right? Well, I need USB, so I can't totally turn it off. So the granularity that most customers are used to dealing with today is either on or off for USB. USB guard allows you to do is it has a, a much easier to use um, command line interface for defining classes of USB devices, what ports those USB devices can be used on, and which administrators get to change those rules. So these classes of USB devices can be made up of, uh, like I said before, you could create a class of, oh, keyboards. Keyboards are fine. Keyboards are fine to use on the back port of the server, right? Cameras are fine. Cameras are fine to use on the laptop you know, front port. But don't dare put together a keyboard and a camera as a combined USB device. No one's allowed to use that on any port, just as an example. Or a microphone USB device, like the one I'm actually talking on right now. Mm -hmm. I do not want that on my servers. It'd probably be okay to have on my, on my laptop, so that, that might actually make some sense. Uh, and I certainly don't want something that's masquerading as a keyboard that just happens to have a microphone attached to it. That's also not a good class of devices that I want to allow. So uh, hopefully I'm relaying here. There is now a capability of defining by class what type of USB devices are allowed to be connected to a system. And don't get confused and think this is just a laptop feature. It certainly will help us with the Mission Impossible style fly into the computer room and <laughs> plug in the USB device and take it out and I've got my, my spy file. Um, so that's the whole thing here is to make it to where you don't have to be a, a UDEV expert to understand how to control what USB devices are on your system. Right I'm now. just thinking, I, all I can think about right now is all of those IT professionals in the DoD who are now regretting their decision to squirt hot glue into the uh, USB yes. ports, <laughs> which was the which was, was the, the thing, which was the yeah. only other way to solve this problem. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Just have customers yeah. that would snip them with little with little wire snippers. They just go in and snip the actual USB ports and like, right, you know, right. Yeah, so I guess we should we should tell people to start shorting the uh, the stocks that have the the hot glue industry uh, people. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think that should be in the wallet. Yeah. So does that does that help to understand what this technology is? I, I'm I'm really mm -hmm. excited by it. It's yeah, really cool. that makes perfect sense. Oh, and I'd like to point out, we're going to have some links in the show notes, right? Mm -hmm. And there is an excellent blog uh, from Lucy Kern that walks the people through how to use this technology. And more importantly, it even lists some of the USB-style attacks that have occurred and why you might want to use this technology starting now on RHEL 7.4. That's mm -hmm. great. That's great. Excellent. Okay, right. and then and then if somebody does plug in a rogue USB device, uh, is there any sort of logging enhancements that uh, are available in RHEL 7.4 to to be able to capture that? So the fun part about that is if it's a if it's a device, um, well, okay, so yes, and uh, two that couldn't happen, Dave. What are you talking about? With <laughs> USB guard, um, the default rule in USB guard uh, can be set up either way, but generally it is deny USB devices from connecting unless they're explicitly allowed. It is the SE Linux of USB world. Um, so in this model, unless you are allowing uh, a particular class of device, you can plug it in and you're not ever going to get it mounted. It will be denied at the UDEV level. But that does generate an audit event. Right? That does mm -hmm. generate something that we can then trace using audit. 
Yes. But what about, is it a very readable message, though? Funny that you should mention that. Um, another enhancement that that I am really, really happy about, having been a sysadmin, <laughs> having been someone who's had to look at audit logs on large systems, um, in RHEL 7.4, we did a pretty massive rebase of the audit infrastructure, rebase to the upstream code. And among the many new features that we added in audit, specifically to address the question that you're asking, uh, Dave, is we now have human readable audit logs. <sighs> Gaspar. Um, they're searchable and they're human readable. Now, what do I mean by human readable? Does that mean that there's commas? Because that could be human readable. Um, you can do that if you want to. That's, that's another enhancement, right? We actually have uh, full CSV support for audit logs, which is great as opposed to the, the form that they're currently in. But in addition to searching, when you do a search, you can actually now generate a report and you do it as hyphen, hyphen format text. And what comes out of the system is actually an English sentence about what actually occurred on the system. Hey, Mark Thacker, or it'll look more like, M. Thacker executed this file which opened, or executed this process which opened this file. Wow. And it's actually in readable text, like the way the humans speak. So it's not the like in the number of seconds since the Unix Epic uh, timestamp. Ah. You... <laughs> no, so all, no. that, all that I learned is for nothing right now. <laughs> well, that and your hot glue gun. So um, <laughs> put both of those aside now. And you're great. welcome. That's great. That's great. So one thing that, um, uh, one topic that we, that actually comes up fairly often on this podcast, just given the audience, you know, we talked to a lot of government customers and, uh, open having originated with NIST, um, is, uh, something we're enormously proud of our contributions, not just to the open tooling, um, but also the, the actual SCAP, uh, content, right. Um, we've got, uh, kind of native guidance on, um, uh, on stuff like the STIG and, or uh, sorry, the SRGs, I guess they call them now. Um, so, but I understand there's big news on the SCAP front as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So open SCAP in this release of rel 7.4 is now fully NIST certified. Mm. So that should be something that should delight everyone that has to deploy certified solutions. Um, this is a good thing. This is a very, very positive thing. The other thing that you'll see in this release is that we have, uh, we've obviously moved to the absolute latest versions of the STIGs and the security guides. Um, those include the traditional government profiles, right, of, of mm -hmm. DISA and others. Uh, it also includes the Center for Internet Security Guides as well. Those are very popular amongst uh, more traditional commercial deployments. So, yes, this, this open SCAP, much improved higher, or pardon me, uh, more recent versions of the guides, and it is actually NIST approved for deployment. That is a very good thing. That is yeah. awesome. That is awesome. Happy about it. And that's been a long time coming. Uh, we, we've definitely worked with NIST on this process uh, for some time now, and we're happy to see them uh, and us come together. Uh, oh, also with 7.4, right, the new NIST guide itself is has been dual purpose. It's it's dually authored by uh, NIST and Red Hat, so it's it's new and up to date as well. That's a good thing. Excellent, excellent. It's all coming together. So the only thing you haven't mentioned, or maybe you mentioned it briefly, but you haven't touched on it very much, is uh, SE Linux. You got through an entire set of release notes for security in RHEL, and you haven't really said talked about SE Linux yet. Amazing. Um, 
I should be, I should take myself to task for that. <laughs> yeah. So no, SE Linux. So, um, okay. So a couple of things, we actually had a pretty big rebase of SE Linux in rel 7.3. Um, so with SE Linux in this, in this release, we've been focusing on supporting, of course, SE Linux profiles for all the other new features that I'm not even mentioning in 7.4, which could fill another long set of shows about that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will throw in I will throw in something here. SE Linux at Red Hat is, in my opinion, undergoing a renaissance. Um, there is so much interest, and I've got a sneaky way of pulling SE Linux interest amongst customers. Um, and that is, hey, Mr. Customer, you interested in containers? You like those containers, do you? You want to run containers without security? No, of course you don't, right? So what do you want? You want SE Linux? That's what you want. I've got some SE Linux for you. And and for containers, it's called SVIRT, right? That's very commonly uh, customers just call it SVIRT. That's SE Linux all under the covers. So in 7.4, we, we did manage to sneak in an SE Linux feature, and that is OverlayFS. OverlayFS in 7.4 is the, is the way that customers use um, uh, the non-persistent uh, layered file system for containers, and that is now fully enabled for SE Linux support. So you can turn on SE Linux, you can use it with these new containers, microservices architecture, and still get all the full SE Linux protection that you expect. So you see how well did together there, security and microservices, it's pretty cool. That's great. That's great. And then, and, and I know one of the big, um, well, I guess it was a kind of a headline feature, even though it's in technology preview for 7.4, is, uh, is the system roles, right? Um, and so these are, right. and Mark, hold me to task. Uh, if I'm explaining this wrong, but basically system roles are a consistent interface for sysadmins to mess with stuff on a rel box. So the idea is that if, uh, if you write a script that applies these system roles, um, if you write, if you write the script once, it will apply the same as if rel six or rel seven or rel eight or rel nine or a 10, um, we're creating a, a consistent way of changing and managing kind of configuration settings, right? Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, so these system roles, it is technology preview and, and thank you, uh, Gunnar for keeping me honest. <laughs> um, the other thing that we introduced as part of this first set of system roles, and these will expand over time. Oh, so let's do things. They are absolutely a way to do multi-version rel administration. Mm-hmm. Um, admittedly, there have been community system roles in the past. They weren't called system roles, uh, but they've been written by community members. With RHEL 7.4, this first set of system roles that we're introducing, we've now established the best practices of having the engineering teams that write the technology themselves be responsible for creating, establishing, and maintaining the system roles. So for 7.4, we're actually introducing the SE Linux system role. So if you use Ansible uh, to deploy your environment, you now have a role that uh, will allow you a single unified way of rolling out and turning on SE Linux policy across your uh, various rel environments, 6 and 7, um, across all the minor releases, regardless of the fact that we did a rebase of SE Linux in 7.3. Right. This provides you with a uh, rel agnostic. Is that the way to start? Sure. Yeah. Of uh, of administrating your your environment. As as an admin, you just want to turn on SE Linux. Back to what I said earlier. Everyone uses SE Linux turned on. Um, so this provides you a single a unified way of of, of administrating SE Linux, regardless of the particular version number that we're at. 
So that is in technology preview, but please go take a look at it. Ansible ad- admins all over the world just jumped with joy. Uh, <laughs> and this is, this is not the only thing that we're doing it to. It's not just security. It's not just SE Linux. Uh, there are a handful of roles. This is fully documented. This is just the first of many with many, many more roles to come. Yeah, and if I could if I could wax poetic about this for a second, you know, I think everyone understands that Rel makes two basic promises, right? The first is uh, a certain amount of stability for hardware and kernel work, and uh, through that we call we call that the KABI, the kernel ABI, right? Um, then we make another set of promises to people building applications, and that's around the RHEL ABI, right? So I know that if something runs on RHEL 6.0, it's going to run just fine on 6.4 and 6.9. Um, the, with the introduction of the system roles, we're actually introducing, I feel, I like to talk about this as like a third promise that we make as part of RHEL, which is the API or the ABI um, for, ironically, the, our biggest customers, right? Which are literally the customers, the end users themselves. Um, and so now sysadmins have their own reliable API that will maintain consistency across major versions. Um, it should make it much easier to automate uh, rail deployments uh, in a way that it, uh, frankly, hasn't hasn't uh, hasn't been possible before. Yep, absolutely. And again, for 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 things like security, you can tell that this is going to be a very good thing, or networking, etc. Where where the stack differences can slap you in the face as an admin. So we're trying to, to kind of make it to where adoption uh, moving forward is is easier. You know, hey, I can admin SC Linux on six and seven the same. So uh, let's go take this new hardware. Yeah, that lets us seven. Awesome. Cool. So what's okay. so what's been going on on the so that's all that was your kind of security roster right for for seven four but you still had your fingers in the storage roadmap as well right? I did, I did, and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, it's been rather busy recently. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you, you did something that it requires a lot of courage to do, uh, which is that <laughs> you. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right metaphor here. Uh, Mark giveth and Mark taketh away. Mark giveth and Mark taketh away. <laughs> <laughs> So what we're, what we're joking about is uh, we've had a file system that's been in tech preview since, ooh, clear back to RHEL 6. 2010. Yeah, 2010. Uh, yeah, back in yeah, 2010. Yeah. Um, so ButterFS, right, which is mm. uh, at one point was uh, an up-and-comer. Everyone's very excited about the file system. Uh, the enthusiasm around it started to cool off a little bit. I don't know. Give us, give us the history here. Oh, gosh. Um, the history is long and, and, and very winded, and I will also tell you that I was on the other side of the history for a long time, right? At Sun Microsystems per our prior discussion when we started mm-hmm. ZFS. Mm-hmm. Um, so ButterFS, uh, community file system, and like you said, it was supposed to be the replacement for the very popular EXT file systems, EXT3, EXT4. Um, it, it had lots of promise. It is a volume-managed file system, which means it gloms together from the lowest levels of I just plugged my hard drive in – all the way to the highest levels of I want to create a file system. That's all one giant stack of technology that's essentially – I said it was a stack. That's not really fair. That's treated as if it's one giant entity. And the same thing actually uh, is the case with ZFS. It's also a volume-managed file system. So you manage volumes as pools of storage devices, uh, which transparently get file systems laid on top of them. The, the big problem with ButterFS was – not only was it supposed to be easier to use, um, but it also had some interesting features, compression, deduplication, snapshotting, uh, RAID levels all built into it. Interest was really hot for a long time. 
And from what we have seen talking to our customers, we just couldn't get the product to be at the level of stability that Red Hat could, you know, essentially put our seal on it and say, yes, Mr. Customer, we completely trust that you should run all of your enterprise class data on this. Mm-hmm. There were just, honestly, over time, the interest waned and it changed. So over time, what we found is there were just still too many issues that we could not find a way to address long-term. Um, for example, and this is, this is all in the open, RAID 5, RAID 6 doesn't work in ButterFS. And the only fix that's really out there is to rewrite it from scratch, and that's a complete data change on disk. That's not something that Red Hat can really stand behind and say, oh, that's great. It's a file system that's wonderful, except you can't use RAID 5 and RAID 6, <laughs> right? That doesn't really play well with our customers. It's not the kind of stability that they want, whereas we actually do have a solution that already works today with LVM. Software-defined RAID is built into every version of, of RHEL today that's completely independent of the file system. Um, so what we've done with 7.4 to kind of get to, to the end note here is <clears throat> we've deprecated ButterFS in 7.4 so that we are not moving forward with ButterFS as a solution that we think is going to be replacing any of the file systems that we have in Red Hat today. So it's not replacing XFS. It's not replacing EXT4. Um, we did do a lot of updates in 7.4 for ButterFS. It will remain in the rel 7 timeframe. Back to what Gunnar said earlier. Uh, being a technology preview, we could arguably just not have to do anything with it. We will provide security patches and updates, and we will provide you know major bug fixes for ButterFS. But we are not um, moving forward with it into the next major release of rel. right? It, it's better for us to really kind of make it clear about what the direction of that is at Red Hat, right? So that's basically the long and short of it. Um, there are some great innovative features there, and really our plan is let's figure out a way to get those innovative features to work across multiple file systems, ext 4 XFS, et cetera. Let's figure out a way to go solve the management solution, right? Let's make RHEL easier to manage from a storage point of view, that doesn't necessarily require us to do ButterFS or even a new file system at that point. So that's what we're trying to do. If, if you were a ButterFS fan, yes, I actually do want to hear from you. What is it that you're doing? What is it that you're hoping to achieve? What features, what, what business problem are you trying to solve? That's the language that we want to speak about is how can we go solve your problem? ButterFS is one of many tools available to go solve problems. So well there you go. That's well what put. ButterFS is. Yeah, and I want to and I want to compliment you. Um, I know that it is always difficult to mothball a feature or a product. <laughs> um, it's in fact, it's a lot harder to kill something than it is to start something. Um, and but it is just as important uh, to be able to have that have that discipline. So uh, I know it's unpleasant, and it's probably going to create some unpleasantness for for some of our customers who are really hoping for uh, for full support for ButterFS. But um, I think uh, I think you made the right decision. So thanks, Mark. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. I take it away. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Although, but, so but, well, actually, you give with one hand, and you give with one hand, and you take with the other. So, but but we, there's actually good news on the storage front as well, right? 
Oh, yes. So the other reason why I've been busy beyond uh, responding to certain emails from from customers that were maybe a bit surprised about the ButterFS transition, um, Permabit. So on August 1st, Red Hat announced the acquisition of the technology and the people from Permabit, a company that's been around for about 20 years in the storage space. So let's let's talk about that. I'm so excited about this. Really, really am. Um, Permabit. They are in the business of providing inline compression and deduplication that is fast, that is super scalable. Uh, up until this point, uh, Red Hat has worked with Permabit on the compression and dedupe in terms of a meet-in-the-channel partnership. So as you guys know, we have an entire storage division, Red Hat Storage, and they make these awesome Ceph and Gluster storage products. Um, they had customers that would want to store data and could benefit from compression and deduplication, namely customers that were trying to use these technologies in the cloud where you really do pay by the gigabyte per month, right? If you can, if you can compress data twice, yay, you will totally take that cost savings, right? It's an awesome everyday bottom line impact to you. Uh, but we didn't have a solution in RHEL or in our storage products for compression and dedupe of data at rest. So we would meet in the channel with Permabit. Uh, we have now acquired Permabit. We are definitely on the path to, as we have with all of our acquisitions, we are open sourcing the technology. Hmm. So there is now going to be a commercial class dedupe and compression product in the open source community that will help to address, quite frankly, some of those ZFS and ButterFS customer needs, right? Those customers that were wanting to use those products to get compression and dedupe, uh, we now have a solution for them. So this technology from Permabit, a 17-person company out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, that is going to be baked into Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And it is baked in, uh, to get a little technical, it's actually baked in at what we call the device mapper level, mm -hmm. which translates into this works with any file system and anything that's a block device on RHEL. So if you want to continue to use XFS, great. That's what we would recommend you use. What if you're an EXT for diehard? Wonderful. You get compression. You get dedupe, right? It's it's everybody that everyone that runs a file system on top of RHEL gets compression and dedupe, and it's very very fast. Um, to be also transparent, because we are a transparent organization at Red Hat, uh, compression and dedupe are often considered table stakes, but that also often means they're treated like table stakes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have numbers. I'm not going to share them here, uh, but uh, if you look at Windows compression and dedupe, and you look at other technologies that are out there, it's generally so incredibly CPU intensive that it's there. You're welcome to turn it on, but no one really wants to turn it on. So customers end up taking the hit of having uncompressed, undedupe data uh, in the cloud. Right. This gives us a single unified solution that works on hardware. It works on virtualized environments. It works in the hybrid cloud model. It works in public cloud. Can you run RHEL? Yes, you get compression and dedupe. So that's that's the idea. It saves, it reduces costs by saving the amount of space that your data takes up. Same data, same file system, same accessibility, completely transparently compressed and deduped under the hood for you. That's awesome. I'm so mm -hmm. excited about this. I can't wait to get this thing shipping. It's awesome. Uh, I'm yeah. really happy about it. 
Well, and the the thing that I, you touched on this, Mark, but the thing that really excites me too is that by being at the device mapper level, uh, that allows innovation to happen independently uh, with between different groups. So um, instead of like uh, ZFS or ButterFS, where everything has to like be in one uh, file system, here you could have the device mapper or the Permabit people working independently, and it, you know whether it affects your RAID or you know it's it's all separate, and and everybody could uh, just move at their own pace, and then you could add the technology when it's ready. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely, and, and in fact, we're already taking advantage of that. We're looking at some future technologies ourselves um, around how do you make file systems easier to manage, and and the fact that when we have compression and dedupe, didn't derail those plans, right? Our conversations are like. Oh, cool. Two new device mapper devices. Excellent. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. It, it's just completely independent innovation. Um, and again, you're going to start to see that roll out uh, in some minor releases of RHEL. Uh, plans to be de- 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 described in detail in the future. Uh, this is really early stages. Literally, this was August the 1st, so we're not even a couple of weeks into this acquisition at this point. So. Yeah, in fact, it was uh, Mark and the uh, Permavit people actually briefed me on their plans about two hours ago. So that's that's yeah. <laughs> that's how soft this is. A little is. fresh. <laughs> did you like them, Gunner? Because they're really fresh. I did. I did. It looked good. It looked good. It's a, it smelled delicious. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so Mark, uh, uh, first of all, uh, really, actually, a staggering amount of work. Um, I think I guess this is the uh, I guess officially seven four is the Mark Thacker release of Rel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take it if you like it. There were other product <laughs> managers, you know, the other people do work for you, Gunnar, and they did a really good job. Well, it's true, and and in fact, you know, the conversation about system roles got me thinking. We probably ought to get Terry Bowling on the on the show oh, to yeah. talk about system roles because uh, that's a uh, that's a that's a fascinating project um, with a, with a with a really nice history. So um, good. Well, Mark, thank you so much for spending uh, all this time with us oh, walking us through 7.4. This, is, uh, this has been really great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and Mark, if people wanted to get all the links to the things that we talked about today, what, what site do we want to send them to? So you want to go to g dgshow.org. Let me repeat that again. It's dgshow.org. And I really, again, like I was saying uh, previously, go to the site, pull down the release notes, We've, we will annotate this with a lot of links to drive you guys directly to where you want to go to, to learn more about this technology. Yep. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mark. I, I appreciate it too. This is, this is really good. A lot, a lot to chew on here. And I'm, I'm literally running uh, RHEL 7.4 myself as, as I'm talking into uh, my USB device. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye.